Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free, yes, free, to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror stories for older readers. You can find out more information about all of that, not to mention thousands of interviews with authors, editors, literary agents, PR folks, all the world's best people in publishing, available at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and that's more than enough uh, intro. By golly, we got to get to it. We've got uh, Aisha Said uh, with us today. Uh, Aisha, how are you? I'm great, and I'm so excited to be chatting with you. I am thrilled that, uh, that we were able to get together and, and make this happen. Um, we're going to talk at some point, I know, about Wonder Woman, because I love Wonder Woman, and I love that you've got a, a two books and a trilogy. Soon they'll, they'll, they'll all be available. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Omar Rising, all kinds of great stuff. Um, but first, I always uh, I, I make my, my pledge to esteemed audience and to my guests that I will never make you sit through me fumbling over your biography or a description of your book, how painful that would be. Um, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I write books um, for all ages, all children's ages. So I write picture books. Um, Bilal Cooksall is um, my first picture book about a little boy that likes to cook with his dad. I write middle grade books. Um, and in middle grade, I've done fantasy, like you mentioned, Diana, Wonder Woman. Um, I've done Aladdin, but I do, um, for my original work, I do contemporary work. So like Omar Rising, Amal Unbound. Um, those are two stories set in Pakistan, which is my ancestral roots. And, um, and I also do young adults. So I write for teens. My most recent teen book was co-written with Becky Albertalli. And uh, it was about two teenagers who were campaigning for a local election and romance ensues <laughs> as sometimes does. So, um, so yeah, I, I, write, I write the full gamut, which I feel really honored um, and grateful that I get to do. And I had read that you had started reading originally at three years old, is that right? This is what I've been told. <laughs> this is what my parents have said that, yeah, I've been a, I was a very early reader and, um, you know, that habit kind of stuck <laughs> all these years later. So um, do you remember, I mean, my wife picked up reading right around age two, age three, just kind of on her own. Did somebody walk you through it and teach you to read or? From, I mean, I think my parents read to me since I was little. And I think that's, that's what I also do with my kids is I've been reading to them since they were babies. And I think the more and more access you give kids to books, the more and more they get curious about. It. And I think my parents' pace was just not fast enough for me. And so I said, I guess I got to figure out how to start reading <laughs> because I need to. So the way that it's been told to me is that I did sort of teach myself in the sense of like starting to sound out words. I know um, my first book that um, my parents said that they ever read to me and that i first read was, uh, it was called Pele's New Suit. Um, it's a book from the 1920s about a little boy who shears a lamb and, and spins that into cotton and the whole process of getting a suit back in the day. And um, I remember back then my parents would um, read that book to me, but substitute the name. So like Pele became Jamil and like, instead of going to his uncle, he would go to his chacha. These are like Pakistani names, like Muslim names. And so 
um, years later, when I was looking for the book, I kept looking for it with the with the names my parents had given me for that book. And then my parents told me, like, no, we changed them because there wasn't a lot. There were not a lot of diverse books we could find. And so we kind of hacked it and made up our own names to substitute. So you could at least sort of recognize and, and you know, feel a little bit seen in the stories you were reading. They're planting the, the seed early that you're going to go on and eventually become one of the founding members of We Need Diverse Books. And it starts right there at age three. Gosh. Yeah, you know, I've never connected that dot, but you're right. My parents were kind of, yeah, I think it was always in there. And you're right. Yeah, that's true. So you're, I'm assuming you go on to, be, to become uh, a, a, a big reader, right? So I know you're working at uh, Borders Bookstore by the time you get to college, and you don't take that job just because of the incredible pay and benefits, I assume. <laughs> it's your book fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've loved to read. I mean, every Saturday uh, growing up, my parents would take us to the library and we just got as many books as the library would allow us to take. And that was my entire life. And yes, I mean, once I found out bookstores existed in my teen years, I wanted to work at a bookstore. And so I took the first opportunity I could. And it was it was such a dream to work in a bookstore and get to see the latest things coming out, get to see authors coming in to do author talks. I'd never met an author until I was at Borders. And um, so for me, until that point, an author felt like, I don't know, like a myth, like a legend, like what do they do? Like how, how do they exist in our world today? They just felt so ephemeral to me. And so seeing them sitting there, Sometimes they have three people in the audience. Sometimes they have a hundred people in the audience and getting to see that range. Um, it really made becoming an author suddenly seem like something that I could do too. Um, I really feel like working at Borders um, Books and Music, may it rest in peace. It was a good bookstore. Um, I feel like that experience um, really helped make becoming an author something that I thought I could actually do. It occurred to me that I've just said something slightly discouraging or, or disparaging about a bookstore. So I should emphasize that only applies to borders that no longer exist. All bookstores operating now, fantastic and amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, when, when do you get bit by the writer book? When does it occur to you that maybe I do want to write a book? Um, so I feel like I don't remember it. Just like I don't remember when I started reading because it's just been a part of me my entire life. Writing has always been a part of my life. I have been a notebook hoarder from as long as I can remember. And um, I wasn't that great at school growing up. It wasn't until 10th, 11th that I finally kind of got the hang of school. And so I would get just really bored. I would get distracted. And so what kept me sitting in my seat were writing stories. And I remember <clears throat> I didn't have the name fan fiction back then. I was a 80s and early 90s kid. And um, but I remember I'd watched Aladdin and I loved it. And so I would write fan fiction, like what happens next? And I would write offshoots and uh, other kids in my class caught on to the fact that I was doing this and they'd want to read my stories. And so I would share them, would get passed around. And it was really, it was really cool. Then when years later, like Disney approached me and said, we're doing a live action Aladdin book, um, movie. Would you like to write the tie-in book for it? And I was like, wow, I've been preparing for this since I was a kid and I didn't even know it. You're gonna pay me to write a story about Aladdin when I've been doing it for free for so many years as a kid. So that was really cool how that kind of came full circle. But yeah, I, I've always loved to write, but I never, um, 
saw it as something that I could ever do to get published because, you know, there didn't seem to be a clear path. There's, you can major in college in um, creative writing if you want or English, but that's not authorhood. That doesn't get you right into your foot in the door of a publishing house to get published. So it felt so, uh, it, I just didn't know how to begin. And so, like I said, it was at Borders, like getting to see diverse books on the shelves that I hadn't seen before and being inspired, getting to see authors coming in that I started realizing how to do it. I think, I think just getting published, it's very intimidating when you're first looking at it. It just seems completely unattainable. Finding a path toward authorhood seems unattainable. At what point do you, who, who said you, you didn't take you weren't doing that wonderfully in school decide you want to be a teacher and of second grade. Um, well, I loved, I loved working with kids. Um, and even when I was in high school, I would work in aftercare and like help, uh, you know, at the local elementary school to work with kids. So I, I always loved working with kids. And, um, and so when I was picking a career path, like I said, authorhood felt so out of reach for me that I thought, well, I also love working with kids, so I'm going to do that. And so I did do that. And I did that for a number of years, and I loved it. I taught second grade in Atlanta, and I worked with a primarily refugee population, and I loved it. Um, I ended up going to law school after that because um, I wanted to represent kids in the legal system who were having issues with access to education. Because as a teacher, I was seeing an issue with kids getting access to an education, and I wanted to do more about it. Um, and so th that's, that's uh, where I began. And, and I'm really grateful because now I write for kids. So I get, I'm not a teacher anymore per se, but I get to still go do school visits and I get to still work with the population that I care about and I get to write for them too. So that feels very, very special. I always have, I have admiration in my heart for all teachers, but especially anybody that does third grade and under, because I, I substitute teach, so I've done every grade at, at some point or another. Uh, and if I go in and I know I'm going to deal with the, the junior high kids, eh, it's going to be fine. They're, they're probably going to say some silly things, and that's, that's, that's what adolescents do. But second grade, first grade, that's a full day. Those kids demand your full attention. If you're in study hall in the high school, you can sneak in some writing while everybody's doing the working. But second grade, that's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I loved it. I felt like the, the hours would just fly by and it was, you know, it just consumes all of you. I love that so much, but didn't love the parent-teacher conferences and all the bureaucracy and all of that. So now I get to do a school visit and spend all day with the kids and absorb and do writing workshops and talk about books. And then I don't have to do the, I don't have to do all the paperwork <laughs> afterwards. So now <laughs> I, I feel like I found the best, best possible scenario for me. <laughs> So you set up and then when it's time to figure out the, the curriculum and, and, and deal with all of that nonsense, you're out of there. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I'm uh, curious, because I, I know you're, you're, you're writing at that time as well and you're, you're finding time, but I'm curious when you, when you become a lawyer, what, what specific issues are you trying to address and that's, that's, that's keeping these children from, from getting education? So I worked with kids with uh, disabilities and chronic illness. And so um, I would have cases sometimes. And also, um, like, I had a kid, one kid, who was in a wheelchair. And the school did not have a wheelchair ramp. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And um, they, they were home for months 
not getting an education, um, getting some resource teachers coming here and there. And so sometimes, and those kind of things don't become protracted. I, that's literally just as a lawyer calling a school and they're like, whoops, uh-oh, like we got to do this right away. So sometimes it was as simple as that. Um, you know, sometimes it was like a child who's undergoing cancer treatment and isn't able to focus. And so they need an individualized education plan put together, at, you know, for this particular time and a 504 plan. Those are government, like, um, those are federal uh, laws to protect kids who need, who have special needs in the classroom. And so just, you know, sometimes schools are backlogged. I, I get it. Schools are so backlogged. There's so much going on. They're understaffed, underpaid. And so sometimes it can take a long time for these needs to be met, but a kid needs those those things addressed right away. And so they would reach out to Atlanta Legal Aid and I was there as the education lawyer helping push those things through. Um, it was really meaningful work. I, I really uh, appreciate my time there. I didn't last too long. I only did it for a couple of years because I, even though I loved what I did, I, I, I'm not a very confrontational person <laughs> and it just, uh, it was very draining. Um, I feel like I sort of burned out from it because it was just so draining and so, so much back and forth and fighting for things that um, I don't think that that's what I was kind of um, built for. And I, around the second year that I was working as a lawyer, I found out I was having my son, my first son, and I realized I was at a crossroads because I'd always wanted to write and I was writing on the weekends and you know, wherever I could find some time. But I realized once I became a parent and I was, and let's say I was a full-time attorney and a parent, when was I going to write? How was I going to fit this in? And so at that point I decided to take a leap of faith and say, I'm going to, I'm gonna cut one of these so I can follow my dream. And so I, um, the first year, I decided to give one year to trying to see how this writing thing went and to give it everything I had. And so I quit law on a dream, basically. You're giving it everything you have the same year that you have a new baby who also <laughs> feels that he should get everything you have. <laughs> well, luckily, luckily, babies nap a lot. Um, although, again, you're exhausted while they're napping. But I, I because I knew I had this year, I, I had a special kind of fire under me. And I so I, I made the most of it, and uh, and I, you know, I did manage to finish my first full novel for publication um, that first year. But yeah, it, it wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. So I mean, at that point, I know that you you'd written a draft of Written in the Stars prior to that, right? Because you've been working on that while teaching. Yeah, so I had been working on that since I was in college, actually. I had the idea for Written in the Stars, my young adult book, since I was in college. And, you know, just slowly here and there, just like drafting it and brainstorming it, getting stuck and then being too busy because I'm in law school now. So now I have two <laughs> two months I can't work on it. So very, very slowly, I did have a, I did have a very messy draft by the time um, I quit my job. Um, but, you know, as everyone listening probably knows that the the real work comes in when you got to fix that mess and make it a book that um you know a book that people will read one day and so so yeah the year of um that first year that that's what I did I was revising and you know re rejiggering that that book that I'd been working on it from that point at that point seven years at that point and so by the time you when when do you start submitting uh that book you're just going through the, the the usual query route, right? 
I did. I, I went the, um, I didn't know anybody in publishing. I had no connections. I, what I did is I went to the bookstore and I, this is, Query Tracker may have been around in 2010, but I just perhaps didn't know about it. So what I did was I just went to the bookstore and I would pick out the books of authors I love to read, authors whose books were similar in tone and style to mine. And I would read the acknowledgments and I would see who they were thanking. And, you know, if they like their agent, they're going to probably thank their agent. And so I started making a list of all the agents that were thanked and then looking up their, uh, you know, if they're open for submissions, what their policies were. And from there, I made my list of who to query. And yep, I, I, it was a slush pile. I was, I was found in a slush pile, like so many, many authors have been. 2010, everything runs together for me now. I can't remember, were we doing uh, paper queries by mail at that point or was it email? Um, so I was, they, there were both options. I did an email query, but then when I was getting requests for partials and fulls, 90% of the time the request was for paper. So I had to print out and bind it and send it. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone does that anymore. I don't think so. Yeah, no, I've still got a packet of a special high-grade paper that was specifically for when somebody requested a submission. <laughs> oh, this paper, when you feel it, it's it's quality. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I did the same thing. I sure did. I probably still have it here somewhere, <laughs> some of it, yeah. Now my son draws on it occasionally. <laughs> That's probably a good use for it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're, you're out on submission. How long does it take you to find... You find your agent, Faye Bender, I know is your agent now. Is that who you connect with? No, um, Faye's uh, been my agent for about a year now. I love her. She's wonderful. Um, my first agent, though, was, uh, uh, her name was Natalie Lacasel, and she uh, was at Sandra Dykstra Literary Agency, because Sandra Dykstra published a lot of diverse titles, and so I felt like my book would have a good home there. And um, that was the number one agency on my list. And so when they made an offer pretty quickly, I was, I was completely overjoyed. And, uh, and that was that was incredible. And uh, yeah, uh, it, that that part went so well that I thought, okay, well, that, and then she's going to send it off, and it's going to get published, and you know, the rest is history. But the rest of the process didn't work so easily. Um, you know, once she had a chance to read it and she, um, you know, she, we revised it a little bit, she sent it off and it was pretty much, you know, rejections, which that's part of the game when you're trying to get out there. And so, you know, I kind of expected that. And um, after one round, Natalie actually left the agency. And so her junior agent, Taylor Martindale, took over for her and became my agent uh, there. And so she loved the story too. She believed in it and we continued to send it out. But um, two years went by and every single response was pretty much a no. Um, and, you know, it was really disheartening, of course, to get rejected, but some of the reasons for the rejections were what really hurt. Um, like, for example, some editor said, um, I already have another Indian author on my list, which, you know, I mean, first of all, I'm not Indian, I'm Pakistani American, but also, why is one, <laughs> like, is there a quota, you know, because... Yeah, that was really frustrating. Um, I would get, um, this is not a mainstream book um, or books like these don't sell. And, you know, if I was getting feedback, like you need to fix this character or you need to up the pacing, those are things I can work with, but I can't do anything about the fact that an editor has 
you know, they have one Indian author on their list. I can't, I can't fight that. And so, so it was really, really disheartening, but you know, as we know, the story had a happy ending <laughs> and, uh, you know, we found, uh, you know, um, Taylor queried it. It was on the last round of queries because it had been about two years and she sent it to Nancy Paulson at um, Penguin and uh, she fell in love with it. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a dream come true because it truly was the end of the road for that book. I was already working on others. I wasn't giving up, but it seemed to be the end of the road for this story. And um, luckily she scooped it up. So I feel, I feel really grateful. And there's a story I do tell people sometimes that um, I had a, by then I had a, um, he was two and a half years old by the time the book sold my oldest son. And um, so when I took the call from Nancy, she wanted to have a chat with me before she bought the book to make sure we had the same vision. And I took the call in the basement. My husband was watching the kids upstairs. And um, and then, uh, I, you know, I emerged from the basement and I'm shaking. And I'm like, she, you know, Penguin wants my book. Penguin wants my book. And um, we were so happy. And then later, a few weeks later, I heard my son at a play date and he was talking to the um, his friend and he's like, so no human wanted to publish mama's book. So a penguin bought it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this poor child, he's been watching my journey. And now he's like, wow, she stooped to the animal kingdom <laughs> for, for publication. <laughs> so he was really disappointed when he met Nancy and was like, that is not a penguin. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, based on uh, some of the responses you described, it sounds like penguins might have done a better job than some of the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it just shows you the sign of the times. As you, you said, 2010s when you're when you're when you're getting started with the queries. I don't. I I like to think that there's not an editor who would be dumb enough now to put in writing we already have one Indian author. They might come up with some other, you have to read more closely to see what it is that they're saying, but hopefully they're, they're, we're at least at a point where they wouldn't explicitly state that. I, I, it's hard to imagine that now. And it's hard to imagine that it was so recent that that, that was said, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, 2010 is, is, is a ways away, but not that far, far back in the past. But I think a lot has changed and that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, part of the reason it changed, of course, is because We Need Diverse Books became such a, a huge success. So how do you get involved with, with them and in, in the founding of them? So um, we, so I was so excited to have my book deal and that the book was finally coming out. My dream was coming true. And I, um, you know, my, I was talking to my agent, Taylor, who was my agent at that time. And she said, you know, I said, oh, okay, who's my publicist going to be? Is there going to be a tour? How does this all work? And she was, she was tempering my expectations. And she said, listen, um, you know, really happy for you with this book, but it's a quiet book. And so you'll have a publicist, you might not ever talk to them. Um, you, you know, they're going to do stuff for you, but I don't know about a tour or anything like this is a quiet book. And I'd never heard that term before. <clears throat> and so I went and down the Google rabbit hole <laughs> and started looking up, what does that mean? And of course, everything I found was depressing because quiet book from what I had read at that time meant that a book that's pretty much not expected to do well, um, it's just gonna be kind of niche. <clears throat> and so that really depressed me. And then I found Ellen O's website and she was, um, who's a middle grade and young adult author. And uh, she had all these statistics on her website about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, she had all these different um, links and uh, graphics about 
the state of diversity in children's literature. She had compiled them and about how few diverse books were published every year and how they did in the marketplace and how much support they received and how many books by um, BIPOC creators are reviewed in the New York Times and the numbers were abysmal. And so I started understanding that, okay, so just because I have a book coming out, if it's not gonna get the support from publishers, if it's not gonna be put out there, then I have no chance. This will be my first book and my last book. And so, you know, reading all those articles that she had compiled, um, it was really depressing. But I, you know, it was good to know. So I went on Twitter right after reading all of these and I wanted to find her and thank her for, for having all that information. And I just so happened to stumble upon <clears throat> the conversation that was happening about BookCon, which uh, was, I don't believe it's around anymore. And hopefully it comes back in another form at some point. But at that time, it was a very big, uh, you know, consumer oriented, best, like, you know, convention and celebrity authors would come, like people from all over and, um, and attend it. And they were having a panel for children's literature that was all white and all male, I believe. That's my recollection. And there was a huge uproar and Twitter was all talking about it. And so I happened to just join in to thank Ellen right as these conversations were happening. So we joined in on the conversation. We started talking about how it's so frustrating that diverse books don't get the attention they need. And uh, more and more people started joining that conversation. And uh, we said, why don't we try to do something about this instead of just complaining? So we said, let's take it offline, um, so to speak. And uh, we got email addresses and we started talking. We said, how about we do a hashtag? We need diverse books. And we asked all our friends, publishing insiders, authors to share on a white piece of paper, we need diverse books because, and share. And, you know, we were hoping our friends would participate and our editors would participate, but we had no idea that it would go viral. <clears throat> and it did. <laughs> it was trending on Twitter for days and days. Um, we had thousands of tweets from all around the world, except for Antarctica, every continent was participating. Um, and PR picked it up, like all these different outlets. It was it was incredible, the the outpouring of people saying, yes, we need diverse books. We want these books supported. And um <clears throat> excuse me. And so we were really excited. It was amazing. Around that time, we decided it was time to buy a minivan because we were growing as a family. <laughs> and uh, I was coming home from the minivan dealership and I had an unknown number on my phone calling. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, I must have left something at the, <clears throat> at the car dealership. And so I picked up because, you know, you never pick up an unknown number these days, but um, I did. And so I, um, you know, it was actually somebody from BookCon who I'd been talking to earlier in the day and they'd reached out and they called me because they said that, look, we're following the conversation and we, we hear you and we do need diverse books. And do you want to all come to BookCon? We'll set aside a room for you. Let's continue this conversation at BookCon. And I was stunned. And I, you know, I really respect them for this because they could have blocked us and like, oh, you know, we're not, you know, we, we don't care. Uh, we're just going to block you out, not listen to you, get defensive, but they hurt us. And so we all talked about it and we were like, okay, we, I'm not published yet. Most of us, you know, we're not very well known in the world and we're like, we're going to go to this and who's going to show up? Like Mindy Kaling's going to be there, like all these celebrities, who's going to come? But we said, we've been given this opportunity, let's go. So we, so we did, we went to BookCon and um, we were overwhelmed um, by the support. The 
the room was standing room only. They had to push people, like they had to uh, turn people away. Um, and it was just industry, you know, publishing industry people. There were readers, there were authors, and it was just, it was so incredible. And that's when we realized that we couldn't just be a hashtag and be done. We needed to make this a lasting thing. And I do want to, I do really want to point out, it's really important for me to point out that, you know, we became a nonprofit and we do lots of initiatives now um, for, you know, diverse causes and diverse authors, but we're not the first <laughs> and we're not the last, like we are building on the works of so many other people like Walter Dean Myers, Jacqueline Woodson has spoken about this. So many others have been doing the work, Lee and Lowe, to try to bring more diversity into publishing. Um, we were just one in that long line of people working on this. And so I am no longer on the board, but I'm a big supporter of We Need Diverse Books and everything that they do. Um, and I definitely encourage anyone who's listening who hasn't heard about them um, to definitely um, check them out because there's writing um, scholarship opportunities that you can get um, if you just need a little bit of financial help to get you um, over the hurdle to finish your book. They have publishing opportunities um, to do internships that, um, that they will help fund with you. So lots of great opportunities there. I'm assuming that uh, everyone who's listening to us and who was enraged by those non-Penguin editors who, who wrote you those rejections, uh, and they want to get involved. I'm assuming if they go to WeNeedDiverseBooks.com, there's opportunities to donate, to volunteer, and to do other Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Opportunities to volunteer, opportunities to donate, and um, and opportunities to, to get to get back. There's so many things there, like mentorships um, to get you in. Um, one of our first writer grant recipients was Angie C. Thomas, um, of the author of The Hate You Give. Um, and I remember, I think she said that she got a new laptop <laughs> with her grant that she really needed. She sent a picture of her taped up laptop that she had until then. And so, you know, absolutely volunteer, donate and, and participate and apply. Angie Thomas recently posted on, she moved recently and she was posting on Twitter about it. And I saw that the first thing she'd set up was her big screen TV and her PS5. And I said, oh, Angie Thomas, you and I in the moment, we are the same. I, I, <laughs> that's exactly what I would, what I, what I do do if I'm moving. <laughs> so um, where I, I asked this uh, a lot of, uh, of, of the publishing guests who are good enough to come on the show. Every time I talk to an agent or an editor, I ask them what they're doing, what they're seeing other people doing to increase diversity in traditional publishing. Where do you see traditional publishing at this point versus where they were in, in 2010? How, how far have they come? How far do we still need to go? Well, I mean, my perspective is, I feel like we've come so far. It, it's, we've come so far. I'm so grateful for all of that. And, you know, when I published Written in the Stars, I was one of very few South Asian authors, I believe, that was publishing in young adult. And, um, yet, you know, my teen book, Written in the Stars, is a story about a girl who's Pakistani-American and forced into a marriage. And it was a story that I wrote because I was, um, you know, because most of us, we write stories, a lot of us write stories about what hurts and about what we think about a lot and trying to process. And that was a story, the forced marriage storyline was a storyline um, that was inspired by people I knew and me trying to process that trauma that had happened to people I loved. And um, however, when that book was coming out, I realized it's one of very few books featuring South Asians and, you know, 
it's a big burden. It's, you know, like the burden of the minority, like how, because there's such few books in the canon, each book carries this heavy, heavy weight that people may read that book and generalize about everybody. Um, I still ultimately wanted to publish that book because an editor friend reminded me that, you know, when writing, we must value um, justice and truth um, above all in writing the story. And, and my hope was the story would help others to escape or avoid that kind of circumstance. But, but it was, it felt very unfair that because of um, the dearth of books that each book written by a BIPOC creator had that much more burden. And I think in some ways that's still true, but there are so many more Muslim writers, so many more South Asian writers now. There's writers writing fluffy love stories. There's writers addressing identity related issues. And so I love that there's that diversity. Um, but I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I do think that I'm in a bubble because you know I was one of the founders of We Need Diverse Books and diversity matters a lot to me. I'm actively seeking out diverse titles. I don't know how that's translating necessarily into the world at large. Um, you know, we're having so many book bans. We're having kind of a like a like a blowback to the diversity that's increasing, especially for LGBTQIA plus um, you know stories. And so, I feel like we've come a long way, but I feel like you know there's very clearly pushback to the fact that we've come a long way. So, there's still a lot of work to be done. Oh, uh, when Lamar Giles was here, check the back catalog of Steamed Audience. It's, it's well worth your time. He said that we would know that we had reached uh, a proper amount of diversity in literature when there was lots of mediocre uh, fiction lying around written by authors of color. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to put it, yep. <laughs> so when you... Um, <clears throat> You keep going, you get gloriously published, and then you keep going despite this this term, this the, the quiet book. Um, I don't think I've heard, hopefully people will stop saying that. It, once the world listens to this podcast and they're going to know what that means, they'll, they'll find a new euphemism for we're not going to put any money into your book. <laughs> but um, uh, once you have that experience, how are you able to translate that now into a thriving career uh, publishing um, publishing a series, publishing multiple picture books, books for teens, middle grade books? Gosh, I mean, it's, it's so hard to know. I, I feel really grateful. I feel so incredibly grateful that I get to, I get to write books and, and that they're well received and that people are reading them. Um, you know, my second book was Amal Bound. That was a middle grade. And I, I feel like uh, that's a story about a 12-year-old girl who loves to learn and loves to go to school and everything ends one day when she insults the wrong person, the most powerful person in the village, and he um, makes her become a servant in his feudal, feudal home. And um, that book became a global read-aloud. And I mean, that's something that I I couldn't have predicted. So the Global Read-Aloud Program, which is uh, founded by Pernille Rip, uh, it uh, when your book is selected, students, uh, teachers from all over the world connect over that one book in each age category, and they read it, they do Skype visits, they do all sorts of engagement with that book. And so I could never have predicted that. I'm so grateful for that, but I truly believe that becoming a global read aloud really brought my story to a wider audience of, um, of, of kids. I got to do so many school visits and um, and so I'm very, very, very grateful for that. And I'm, I love to write, I love to tell stories. And so I think 
just constantly getting the stories out there. There's a saying I've heard many times that frontlist sells backlist. <laughs> and so as writer, as um, you know, readers discover a new title, if they like it, they'll probably go back and read the books that you've already written. And so I hope that's true because <laughs> I am very steadily building my backlist right now. And that continues to, as if you need additional motivation, you're obviously a very motivated writer, but that provides some additional motivation to keep writing new books to continue to introduce readers to the old ones, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> well, we, we talked uh, briefly about them all, and that leads us directly to uh, your newest book, Omar Rising, which is not a sequel, but sort of a, what, like a shared universe type of it's the beginning of the of the Aisha Saeed Marvel Universe, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'm all in for that. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a I, I call it a companion book because um, Amal Unbound is a complete story. And when you're done with that, that story is done. Um, Omar Rising follows her best friend. So if you read Amal Unbound, there's um, a boy who lives behind their house. He's a son of their servant. His name is Omar. And in Amal Unbound, we find out that he got a scholarship to a prestigious universe, uh, excuse me, a prestigious uh, boarding school a few miles, a few kilometers down the road. And as the son of a servant, that's a huge opportunity because he can go on to, um, you know, go to college on scholarship and pull his family out of poverty and break that cycle. And so, you know, when I finished Amal Unbound and I would do all these school visits and kids would always ask, is there going to be a sequel? Is there going to be more? And I always said, no, no, there's not going to be a sequel. But, you know, the more kids would ask, the more I started thinking about these, these characters. And I thought, you know, I think a mall story is done, but what if I followed another friend? And so I started thinking about Omar, who, you know, I felt, I started wondering about him. What's he up to? What's it like for a kid who's going to go into such a different world than he's used to? What kind of struggles is he going to face? And how does his community look? And so because of all the kids asking me those questions, that idea kind of Took, took root and, and grew. And so I decided I wanted to write a companion book. And that way, uh, for readers who maybe hadn't read them all, maybe that wasn't their cup of tea, they could read Omer and not need them all. But for readers who loved them all and who'd been asking for that sequel, they would get to see what she's up to in this book. And there'd be Easter eggs and, you know, callbacks to that world. And you know this whole world that um, that I've been working with Amal and Omar is very personal to me. It's my family's ancestral village. It's fictionalized, but um, the sugarcane fields in Amal and Bound, and the orange groves in the market, those are all from my own memories growing up as a kid, visiting my relatives in Pakistan, and my grandparents were farmers on both sides, and they had orange groves and sugar canes, and so it's a way to honor my ancestry and to bring to readers in the United States and, and, and beyond to what life is like in a village in Pakistan, a place that most readers will never get to visit and um, they get to experience it and, and to see what it's like. So, um, and I'm actually working on a third in this world, the final, <laughs> and I'm gonna be following Amal's other friend Hafsa um, and, and her particular journey too. So yeah, I really love this world. I'm gonna miss it when I'm done playing in it <laughs> for sure. You really think you can leave it? I don't know. That's what I say right now. I said, you know, never say never. I said I would never write another in Amal's universe, and now I'm writing three. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess I should never <laughs> say never. <laughs> I'm going to deduce from that that the uh, door is wide open. We might, we might yet see another companion novel. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> 
So in a situation like that, where you've um, you've got readers who who read them all, who are coming to Amar, uh, and you you want to accommodate them while doing something new, so that it's not necessary to have read that first book. That's a delicate uh, tightrope to walk. And then add to that, you've got reader expectations because they've been asking what's happening to Omar, what's going on with our characters, we want to know more. Uh, and then I assume there's also um, the pressure of, of your relatives, if nobody else, who is, hey, did you, did you represent us well? Is, is, is this me? Did you write about me here? <laughs> I assume that question comes up. Uh, how do you deal with all of that pressure and, and get that out of your head in order to write or do you? That's such a good question. Um, so as far as setting, um, it's fiction. However, it is contemporary, meaning it's based on real places. And so it is very important that you know, my relatives or anyone living in a village in Punjab, um, when they read this, they're not like, where did she come up with this stuff? Like, this isn't real. This isn't true because I am trying to give an experience of that place. So I, I do have um, my stories read by people who are from there as well, because, you know, while it's my ancestry and I have visited and I have done the research, I also want to get the feedback from people still there and who can give me that accurate feedback. I do keep that in mind as I'm writing and um, and yeah, uh, making sure nobody thinks it's them in the story is always very important, um, you know, and, and that's why names are so important to me. Um, it's a story I like to tell uh, with Written in the Stars. I had a character in there named Seba and she is um, not nice. <laughs> She's a real big pain to my main character. And it's funny because over the years, um, I had started writing this story in college. So over the years I met a friend locally um, named Seba, and we became really close. And so when the book was published, uh, she read the book and she called me and said, hey, you made this horrible woman Seba. Like, what, are you trying to tell me something? Do you, is there an issue? She, to this day, will not let that go. She's like, hey, are you going to put another Seba in a book to redeem, redeem me? Because you made me real bad. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I, I forgot. I forgot that, you know, I, I didn't put that together. So now I'm very careful because I do have firsthand experience so people can take it personally. She says she's joking, but I don't, I don't think so. Um, and so, you know, I have a really big family. My, I have, my, my mom is one of like six children. My dad is one of about six children and, you know, their children have had children. So there's so many people in my family, over a hundred. And so when I was coming up with the bad guy for Amal Unbound, um, his name is Jawad, I, I, I basically cataloged everyone because I didn't want to give anybody the name that, uh, that that was in the family so that they might read it and say, hey, that's me. She didn't like me. Look, she just made me the bad guy. So I ran, I ran Jawad through all everybody. I said, anybody know on Jawad? Anybody related to a Jawad or got married to a Jawad? And nobody had. So that's how I came up with his name. Um, so yeah, I do, I do keep that in mind. It doesn't drive my whole writing. Um, but it, it's something I, I do want to be mindful of, for sure. I have the exact opposite issue where people, uh, even if I, there's somebody I would never base a villain completely on anybody. They're all me acting my part as, as who that character I think would be. Um, but uh, people who I have had less than favorable interactions with in the past, uh, who have read one of my books. And, oh, I, you must have based the hero on me, or I must be this good person. Yes, you are, of course. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I mean, sometimes I do, like, especially for bad guys, I do sometimes, like, you know, kind of toy with the name and kind of, like, I mean, for example, in, um, um, in Wonder Woman, 
there's a bad guy named Zoomius that I created. And uh, that is based on Zoom because <laughs> I was writing this book during the pandemic, the, the third book, and I was so sick of Zoom. I putting my kids on Zoom and my kids would cry every time they had to do a virtual, you know, class meetup. And I said, and so I had to come up with a name and I'm like, Zoom, Zoomius. Zoomius sounds like a good bad name. <laughs> So um, I've, I've come around to Zoom, though, over the years. I feel like it has its benefits. But in the, in the beginning of the pandemic, when it was the only way we could interact. Um, so sometimes I do. I do draw from actual things. But yeah. This is a good point for me to thank the good folks at Zoom for making this podcast possible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I know I, I had the same experience where I hated it uh, at first because we weren't having uh, in-person experiences for a long while there. Uh, and now that I am thankfully knock on every piece of wood there is blessed enough to be out in the world having some in-person experiences again. Um, I miss Zoom occasionally. Like I came all the way here in person. This could have been a Zoom call. We, <laughs> we yeah, I, I, I hope that this hybrid situation continues. I think there's a time and place for in-person. And I think I, I think there's such great benefits to Zoom too. So I've come around. I've come around. <laughs> Another question about Omar, and then you mentioned Wonder Woman, and I've got all kinds of Wonder Woman questions. I want to make sure make sure we talk about Diana. Um, but um, Omar is uh, stubbornly optimistic, one of the, the defining characteristics. Uh, he's facing off against all sorts of injustice. There's a rigged system that's out to get him. Uh, right there on the cover, it tells us when the system is broken, you have to rise up. Um, what obviously anybody who's been listening to us up to this point who heard your experience in getting published has some idea of where where some of that's coming from um, but what are you hoping that young readers are going to take away I know that you're very cautious about not teaching lessons or putting morals in your stories because kids kids can feel that coming but what are you hoping that readers are going to take away from this story and how do you do that without becoming uh, preachy yeah, I, you know, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I do try not to moralize in stories because I don't like to read stories like that. And I don't want to, I don't want to write stories like that. But, you know, like, like I'd said earlier, I write about what hurts. I write about things that I'm processing. And I think, you know, Omar Rising is about a kid who learns about the power of community, about working together. And um, my teen book, uh, Yes, No, Maybe So, that I wrote with Becky, Albertali, that's also a story about two teens trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, overturn a local election, not um, to, to win a special election in their district and, you know, knocking on doors. And it's a story exploring how one person may not be able to make a difference, but everyone together can make a difference. And I see the power of that in my own life. I see the power of that you know, that just that perseverance, like you said, just to get published, the perseverance that it takes. Um, those are those are guiding forces in my own life. And so unconsciously, you know, not necessarily like I have to put this in the book, but because that's how I see life, those things are going to show up in my books. And so, yeah, so in Omar Rising, he finds out that scholarship kids are treated like second class citizens. They can't do activities like the other kids do in school. They um, they have higher grades they have to meet or they'll lose their scholarship. And on his own, he can't do it. He can't convince the system to change. But maybe if the other kids around him, especially those with a lot of privilege who ha are wealthy, you know, also put their might behind him and work together, something can change. And um, I truly believe in that. And I, I see that every day in my life, how people coming together. And, you know, I also feel like young people can feel so 
um, powerless sometimes because there's so much going on. There's climate change. There's, you know, right now at, at the recording of this podcast, there's so much horrific things happening in Ukraine. Um, and it can just feel so overwhelming. You're just one person, but these stories, I hope give readers that sense that I might not be able to change everything, but maybe I can fix my school. Maybe I can fix this one issue happening right here. Um, and that can have a huge impact on the people who are affected locally. And that has ripple effects that continue to, um, to extend outward. It does occasionally feel a little bit hopeless, um, not to turn to politics, although I, 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 I I noticed that um, that when you were um, uh, doing your book about the election, that you were out there in 2020, uh, right there in February, before we we all get shut down, doing the the promotion of it. Um, uh, why did I say it? don't? Not to get political. Oh, um, it does feel like anytime I hear there's a political scandal, we have evidence that this politician, you know the one I mean, committed all kinds of crimes. Like 100%, I do believe that you have that evidence. I'm not going to read any further or listen to you because I know after you tell me all these things I should be furious about, nothing's going to happen. So I'm just going to put that over there and step away, um, which is maybe not such a bad system, but it's, it's it, if you do that long enough, it starts to become easy just to lose faith overall. There isn't going to be any justice. And just as we've been talking, not just your publishing journey, but the journey of we need diverse books and the change that has is still coming about in publishing gives us clear evidence that that's not entirely true. There's no point to retreating and becoming negative. You, Aisha Saeed, rose up when the system was broken and you, you rose up to fix it, yeah? Oh, gosh, that's... Thank you for, I mean, yeah, I, I was one of many, you know, again, me, if I had just been the only one tweeting, we need diverse books, I mean, you know, that wouldn't have done anything. Um, it, it would have been impossible if it hadn't been for Ellen and Melinda Lowe and all the other people who, you know, joined forces to talk about it. And then the thousands and thousands of people who also chimed in and, and voiced their support, including within the publishing industry and everywhere. And so, yeah, that's, that's so true. And so it can feel hopeless. And I think, I think despair, you know, is very natural and it's understandable. Um, but despair, like you said, leads to inaction. It can risk you just saying, okay, I, nothing's going to change, but start small, start small, um, show up to your local, um, local meetings that are happening about the, the potholes in your road, <laughs> you know, like show up to things and you never know like where that will lead. Um, we have so much more power locally, I think, than we do like, I can't stop the war in Ukraine, but I can call my local representative and talk to them about it, and they might listen, and that might um, extend outward. So we do what we can. Despair is very natural, but um, we have to hold on to hope if we want to see change. Well, that brings us directly, I think, to Diana and the Island of No Return. Speaking of hope, <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone more hopeful than Wonder Woman? <laughs> so how, how do you get involved in writing a, a Wonder Woman series and, and how long have you been a fan? So that's a great question. You know, I, I 
I knew Wonder Woman. I've watched the movies here and there, um, but I was not what you would say an avid Wonder Woman, like read everything, read the comics. Um, that wasn't me, actually. Um, when I was contacted by Random House, who was working with Warner Brothers, to develop this series with, um, because there was a movie coming out, the Wonder Woman movie that came out in 2020 was coming out and they wanted to do a middle grade, um, you know, story alongside it to debut when the movie came out. And so they contacted me and I was very open with them. And I said, look, I, I know who Wonder Woman is and I've watched some of her movies, but I, I'm not a huge Wonder Woman buff. Like I, I don't know a lot about her. I'm not an expert. And they said, yeah, that's great that we actually love that because we want to write a story about Wonder Woman before she knows she's Wonder Woman, while she's still coming into herself and figuring it out. So we prefer someone who isn't bogged down with everything they know about who she'll be because you're going to be coming from that place. And uh, so it was really, really um, interesting. I will say I'm an expert now on Wonder Woman. <laughs> I feel actually like maternal towards her. Like I watched the Wonder Woman movie that came out in 2020 and when she was in danger, I, I truly felt like it was like one of my kids in a way like, oh no, no, don't do that because I've written her as a kid and I, I saw all her emotions. I really connect with Wonder Woman so much now, of course. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was really interesting because I'd never written an adventure story like this before, like quite like this. I, I, I like to think all my books have some level of suspense because that's important for me, for a reader to want to keep reading. But the suspense and the thrill of Wonder Woman is totally different. It is a totally brand new level. And that was really fun to learn how to write and to take on. And, you know, even though it is a Wonder Woman story, <clears throat> there's demons and all sorts of stuff happening at the core it's a story about a young girl coming of age. It's a story about a girl whose mother doesn't want her to be a warrior while well, she wants this so much for herself. So it's a, a story about identity, about being at odds with your parents. It's a story about friendship. She has miscommunications with her best friend, Sakina, as they do this journey and about what happens when you, um, you know, have a, have a issue with your friend and how do you resolve it? So in addition to being this superhero story, like all superhero stories, the core are, are hu human universally shared truths that we're exploring. And that was really fun for me to do. You mentioned being worried about Wonder Woman, which I also was. I'm, I'm, I'm such a sucker. Like I just watched the Batman and that's, I don't, I don't remember this 11th or 12th time I've seen Batman on the screen and he gets shot or blown up almost every movie. And he, of course, without spoiling uh, was uh was was put in direct harm and i gasp in the theater uh, and i'm i'm a man in my 40s since i'm a child i've been watching batman get out of these last minute escapes I'm like, oh, this might have been it he might be dead this time but really <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, I mean i saw back like you yeah. that I, means I, the writers I, were doing their job the actors and writers and everybody did their job if they could still get you <laughs> I know, like, conceptually, this is the start of a new series. There's a tele... I've already read. I already own the action figure. There's a television series plan. There's no way they kill this titular character right at the start of all that. But <gasps> they might. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You know, It might be the first time it ever happened. <laughs> when, you, uh, when you approach Diana, do you know that you're going in, that you're going to have a trilogy to work with, or...? I did. I knew that it would be a trilogy. And um, and so that gave me a lot of room. And I had to map out all three in in some sense. 
plans. Like I didn't have it tightly mapped out, but I, I, you know, when they asked me to do it, I, I wanted to, to make sure before I took it on, like, can I do this? Is this possible for me to do? And so I did, I, I did have it all mapped out and I knew it was going to be a trilogy. And I had so much fun with that. I had so much fun with, you know, making sure that each story in this trilogy the reader isn't left completely incomplete like it, you have to leave the reader wanting more but also not feeling like there's so much threads open that you're frustrated and um and because you have to wait when if especially if you're reading in real time the series as it's coming out you're gonna have to wait a year between each book and so i want it was um you know it was very important to map out that the reader gets something and they have some resolutions while also leaving enough open that the reader wants to keep on going. And I, you know, and to be fully transparent, um, it was, you know, I was really excited about this series and I love this story so much, this series, I'm so proud of it, but I could not have predicted that it was gonna come out in a pandemic. <clears throat> I couldn't have predicted that it was going to, that the movie was not going to be in the theaters that it was going to pretty much have a quieter release in everybody's homes and so you know because of that you know and then wonder woman book one ended up getting pushed and pushed and pushed due to the pandemic um and so um you know i you know i don't know how wide the readership has ultimately been for wonder woman because of all those pandemic related reasons but i hope now that the third book's coming out may 2022 next month as we're recording um i hope that now that it's complete and we're hopefully like you said all fingers crossed knock on wood like moving a little bit beyond this pandemic i hope it can um have a chance to find readers again oh yeah, there was one of there were many crushing moments during the start of quarantine. But one crushing moment was ever since that 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 the the Wonder Woman movie was it was Wonder Woman eighty four. It it had its faults, but I'm I'm a sucker. And <laughs> Wonder Woman did the thing. Did she have her bracelets out? Did she do the lasso? Yep, I'm happy. I had a great time. Uh, but that was one of the most crushing moments because that trailer with the Blue Monday theme amped me up almost more than any movie trailer has ever done. Like, I can't wait. This is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened. Um, and then it, they took it away. And I'm just, just waiting forever. Ah, oh, the agony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, we, we did our little family Christmas. Is, and it was, the moment it was over, Larry put this, put this wrapping paper away. It's Wonder Woman time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad, you know, that there was at least a means for people to watch it. But I mean, I think when it comes to the book world, books that came out during the pandemic, I'm sure many books did great and um, it was fine. But overall, you know, I would talk to a lot of um, bookstores like that I would go to sign books and I would ask them and they said that books, the book sales are good but people are going during a pandemic understandably so to their comfort books so the books of their childhood or books that you know like diary of a wimpy kid like books that already have a lot of name recognition and so i do feel especially i feel for debut authors whose books came out during the pandemic um where there were not those opportunities to go on tour the way you used to or, or go to those conferences and festivals the way you used to um um, so yeah, that's that's definitely was a sobering, you know, among many, many sobering things in the pandemic. I'd say book sales is probably the least of the depressing things that have happened during the pandemic, but it was definitely a casualty of the pandemic for sure. Not for authors. <laughs> for for authors and book people, it's very much toward the top of the list. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> With uh, when you're writing about a character like Wonder Woman, everybody's got their Wonder Woman. If it's Linda Carter, if it's Gal Gadot, if it's the cartoon, 
which, and even within that, there's specific representation they like and specific things they don't like, and nobody is exactly the same. Same question as I asked you about uh, about working on uh, on Omar with, um, but with that expectation, I mean, Omar, you've got your family, you've got your readers of, of email, but with Wonder Woman, the whole world has an opinion on Wonder Woman. What kind of pressure do you have going into that known universe? What can you play with and change and what are you kind of stuck with? Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, I, that was huge for me. And I felt so honored. I cannot even tell you how much it meant to me to be invited to be part of this universe because it's like you said, it's so storied. There's, it's huge. There's so many fantastic authors and comic writers and you know artists that have been part of this. And to get to play in that world was absolutely incredible to get to be one of the creators of many building out this world and the backstory and the lore um it was amazing and it was also an amazing responsibility i luckily there's not a whole lot out there about diana before she was diana um there are of course you know there's stuff but not a lot lot and so I was given full reign. I could do whatever I wanted uh, within the bounds of the universe. Um, and I had people there. So I had contacts at Warner Brothers. They would read each script. They would read my outlines to tell me like, oh, that couldn't happen or that could happen or, you know, they. so I always had um, that safety net of people there who were very, very much in the know of Wonder Woman. And, I, and they sent me they sent me tons of Wonder Woman stuff so that, you know, by the time I was done, like I said, I feel like I have a PhD in Wonder Woman now. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was really great. But because of the fact that this is pre-Wonder Woman knowing who she is, I had a lot of room, um, a lot of room to play. And, um, and that was, that was really cool. But for sure, there is responsibility. And it's funny because, you know, Wonder Woman's everywhere, right? Like there's Wonder Woman backpacks and Wonder Woman t-shirts. And so my kids, you know, especially the younger one for the longest time, they're like, they would tell people like, my mom made Wonder Woman. My mom, see that, see that backpack there? That's my mom. And I'm like, yeah, kind of, kind of, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I am part of that world, but <laughs> I wish Wonder Woman was my idea, <laughs> but uh, I just get to play in her, um, in her playground. Um, but, but that was really cool for my kids because all that product and they just, they were so proud. So that was really neat. When you uh, sit down and work on the, the story, did you put on like a tiara, keep a lasso handy? Do you listen to the to the, one of the theme songs, either the Hans Zimmer music or the, what, what do you do to get in that mindset? Or is it all, I'm just dealing with young Diana, so you put it all aside. How do you get into that mindset? I, you know, I definitely, you know, did watch some of the movies before I dove in, even though, like they said, they wanted me in fresh, but I still wanted to just kind of get that feel, the tone that, you know, that readers are expecting. And I read Lee Bardugo's um, Wonder Woman young adult book too, um, just to kind of get into that vibe, into that world. But, you know, for Wonder Woman, it's so action-packed and it's so intense. And, and, and the series that I wrote is too, I'm very proud to say. And so in order to capture that urgency, I did something that I don't do with my contemporary. I wrote each first draft for each of those books within a week, meaning that I worked on it from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed. I, it was luckily during the summers, most of those books came out. Um, it was a lot harder during the pandemic because the kids were home, but I managed to make it work um, where I just, I made it my entire world. And so I, um, it's all I thought about. It's all I dreamt about um, because I just wanted to stay in that urgency that she has. And it's an action book. And I wanted the reader to keep feeling that urgency. And so I felt that urgency 
as I wrote the entire book. And so, yeah, I, it was seven days of just writing, writing, writing. And then I collapsed in bed and slept for, I think, 24 hours because that's a lot of writing. And I don't do that with my other books. That's not something um, I've, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it was very effective for me with Wonder Woman um, to get that urgency, um, that tone and that mood into the story. Well, do you feel that the trilogy is about to be complete or will be complete by the time esteemed audience is, is hearing this? Go get an esteemed audience. It's available for you now. Um, do you feel like you've stepped away from Wonder Woman? You'll have a greater respect for the character, but you, you're moving on with other things? Or is there another project that maybe do you want to write about the whole Justice League? Are you, <laughs> do you want to come back in? I, you know, I, I love to keep doors open because you never know. At the moment, there's no plan for any other um, Wonder Woman stories from me. Um, I have a lot of my own story ideas. I'm kind of bursting at the seams with my own ideas at the moment. And so I want to see all of those through. Um, and I have been during the pandemic homeschooling my kids, which has definitely um, made how I prioritize what I work on very differently because they're home. And I mean, I'm very grateful to have a, a, a partner who's very supportive and helps out. And I have a babysitter who's very supportive and I couldn't have done it without them. But but it is different um, when the kids are home 24-7. So at the moment, I'm kind of prioritizing my contracted projects and getting my deadlines completed. I But I love Wonder Woman. And so I would be thrilled to work on more Wonder Woman if that opportunity arose, for sure. I read about you that you, you you have 800 and some odd ideas in your head at any given time. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, you know, and I tell young readers um, when I do school visits that I keep an idea notebook and um, I have one for each year where I just write things down. You never know where an idea is going to strike. And, uh, you know, of all the ideas I have, not all of them are going to become a book, but sometimes they become a part of a book. Like, you know, if I might overhear a really interesting conversation at a coffee shop where, you know, they're talking about something that happened at, you know, their work. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I might, I might put, I might put a fictionalized version of that into a book. Um, so ideas, literally, they, they come from anywhere for me. And um, I do, I do have tons of ideas. Actually, I've to slow myself down because uh, you know there's only 24 hours in a day especially when you're a parent and uh you know doing all these other things but um yeah I'm very grateful and you know something that readers ask me is like oh I'm afraid I won't have any more ideas and I tell them ideas the more the more you write down your ideas and sketch out your ideas I found in my own life that more ideas continue to come to you so never be afraid of holding on to an idea for, you know, just use your ideas and put them in stories and more will come. So of all those ideas that you could be writing about, how do you narrow it down and choose the one that's going to be the next project? The one that's speaking to me and won't let go. <laughs> um, because I think, you know, when you're writing a story, you're with that story for so long. And for me, on average, I'm writing a story from idea to publication, the shortest has been about two and a half years, two years with Wonder Woman, and then the longest has been written in the stars, which was 10 years. And so you're going to be in solitude with this idea for so long, and um, you're going to be rewriting it and revising it, and you have to love it. It has to be an idea that you, you, you need. To, to work on that you feel compelled to. And so there's so many ideas I have where I'm like, that could be cool. That, that sounds like a fun thing, but does it keep coming back to me? Does it keep calling me? And, um, and that's really important. With the Wonder Woman stories, I had, like I said, I was not a huge 
Wonder Woman expert before I began writing it, but I started reading a little bit as I was plan as I was considering whether I would take it on. I had to love it. I had to connect with Diana in order to write her story. And and I did. She's, I mean, how could you not connect? She's so wonderful and so sweet and hopeful and selfless. And so, you know, I really fell in love with her. And that's what made me want to write that series. Um, I think that is so important. Don't worry about, oh, this idea could really sell. Okay, but do you love it? Do you feel like you have to write it? Because that's what's going to motivate you to finish that story. And that's the hardest part is to finish a story. Aisha Saeed, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? <laughs> you know, I swear I have. I have as a kid. I question my memories now, but I will tell you it is the most random interest I have. But if there is a podcast about UFOs, if there is a show coming on on UFOs, I will watch it because I swear I saw them as a kid. And, you know, of course, everyone just patted me on the head when I was little and said, sure, you did, honey. I'm like, I did. I did. I saw I saw something. And so all these years later, I'm still I, I still am trying to be vindicated. <laughs> so uh, and, you know, I feel like there is some vindication, right? Because they have said that there are unidentified aerial phenomenons now, like the government has admitted it. So I am somewhat vindicated. I don't write about UFOs, but I am I am quite into them and <laughs> in learning more about them. It is it is a, one of the many wonders of our age is that disclosure happened and everyone we're busy. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like of all the things that it just it just landed and everybody listened to it and moved on. I'm like, wow, I, I did not move on. I I listened to every everything about it. It was really fascinating. <laughs> Well, I can't get enough. It's one of those interests that uh, it's not practical because you can't get up every day and like, what's the latest in uh, UFOs today? <laughs> there's, there's usually a lot of regurgitation of the, of the same reliable information and then liars that are more than happy to fill in fiction, which if you called it that, I, I might listen. I like good stories. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that we know and there's a lot we don't know. And then there's a lot we know we, that is definitely not true. So there's a lot to dig through. <laughs> Anytime somebody uh, says, now I'm not an expert, but I know exactly what the aliens are up to. I know exactly what they're playing. I can tell you all about their culture, really, <laughs> based on what? <laughs> Maybe write a novel. <laughs> exactly. So, tell me about this experience. How old were you when you, when you saw them? I, I, I know it was in elementary school. I was like four, five, like not, not four. It was in elementary school. So I think it was early years though, pre-third pre grade. And me and my brother, we were in the backyard and we were, it was like in our screen and porch and we were looking out and we were playing and we saw this like light and we saw it kind of going really fast. And, um, and we were convinced. We even called Unsolved Mysteries, I think. Um, we, were, we, we wanted to report it. <laughs> We called the, back then there's a show called unsolved mysteries where they would have mysteries that had no explanation and they had a 1-800 number afterwards and so we even called it we we're like listen we saw a light in the sky and it was moving really fast and it um and you know they were very polite and said okay thank you we'll take a note of it and nothing nothing ever came of it so um but yeah that that happened and it happened more than that like we saw it i feel like i saw it again a couple months later same time of night and you know, it wasn't an airplane and, uh, you know, but of course, by the time we brought our parents over, it was gone. And so they just patted our heads and said, it's time for bed. No more delays. <laughs> so, And now as an adult, I don't know. I'm like, maybe I was just delaying bedtime. I don't know, but I swear I remember it. I, I feel like I saw it. So 
who knows? <laughs> it doesn't sound like delaying bedtime to me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for believing me. <laughs> we, were, we were children about the same time. I, I remember Unsolved Mysteries. I would I would wait and hear the one amazing theme song. Oh, it's another boring murder. Turn this one off. Wait till they get to the UFOs. That's Those are the good episodes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Maybe that's also what, what triggered, you know, like, yeah, that Unsolved. I forgot that Unsolved Mysteries did UFO stuff, too. That's right. So, yeah, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> Do you think eventually we'll we'll see some version of your flying saucer story as a novel? That I don't think so, because I do like to keep some things that are just for me. You know, I feel like when I um, like, for example, I love to read suspense novels. I love to read thrillers, but I, I definitely don't want to write one because when you become a writer for it, then you start analyzing it and, and taking it apart. And I want to just have the thrill of reading an adult suspense and not not analyze it or take it apart, just have fun with it. And I think same for UFOs. I find it really fascinating and I read about it, but I don't I don't want to get too like I, I like the level that I'm at right now and I don't want to go deeper. And I think I would have to to write a story. So some things are just meant to be enjoyed and um, and to see other people's work on it and not be the one working on it. Fair enough. I have, having written a horror novel for adults about flying saucers, I had to reach out to some people and do my due diligence. Exactly. And anytime I write horror, which is why I haven't done it for a moment now, is I have to go and learn about some things that, you know what, I'm glad the story happened, but I was maybe better off not knowing that that was a possible existence on this planet also. Huh. Exactly. <laughs> things you can't unknow then, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Ooh. This has been an absolute pleasure. I, I so appreciate you you're making the time for me and for, for esteemed audience. I'm, I'm watching our time and it's, it's flown by. It always does when I'm talking to somebody fascinating. So you're going to keep writing. We'll have to do this maybe again sometime somewhere down the road. Uh, we'll, we'll meet up at a conference and in person, I'll owe you a cup of coffee. It'll, it'll be a good time. I would love that. <laughs> for, uh, for today, my last question is always some variation of, if you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle of your writing career, wherever it would have been useful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made it easier your path that might make easier the paths for all the writers watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and say to yourself? A piece of advice I would give is um, this quote by Amy Poehler, which I'm going to paraphrase, but she says, talking about the thing, meaning writing, is not the thing. Um, thinking about the thing is not the thing. Reading about the thing is not the thing. Doing the thing is the thing. Writing is the thing. So I think for many years, like in college, like I said, I had this idea for Written in the Stars that I was mostly reading about how to be a writer. I was reading memoirs on writers. I was um, talking about it with friends about being a writer, but I wasn't actually writing. <laughs> and so just, you know, for people who feel intimidated by that process to really, you know, just do it, just sit down and get that, get that messy thing there because that's the thing, you know, and if you need an extra push, something I learned later on was about this thing called NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, where people from around the world write in the month of November 50,000 word novels and, um, and it helps you to push through to get to that writing thing that you must do if you want to be a writer. And so perhaps take advantage of that, nanowrimo.org and um, and just dive in and do it because there's no other way you're going to get to the end unless you start. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Yeah, um, so uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter uh, with the handle AishaCS, A-I-S-H-A-C-S. 
us. And uh, those are pretty much the two places that uh, I hang out on the internet. Hi, and as always, esteemed audience, for um, more information about writing, more information about publishing, check out all the archived interviews available for you at middlegradeninja.com. There's guest posts for you as well. There's information um, uh, from just about every, every everybody I can, I can get to give us information, and it's all available to you for free at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.